Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Max Porter talks about painting with words in his new book, The Death of Francis Bacon. Max Porter is the author of Lanny, which was long listed for the Booker Prize, and Grief is the Thing with Feathers, which was the winner of the International Dylan Thomas Prize and was shortlisted for the Guardian First Book Award and the Goldsmiths Prize. He's a recipient of the Sunday Times, Peters, Fraser and Dunlop Young Writer of the Year Awards. And Max's latest book, which we're going to be talking about today, is The Death of Francis Bacon. Max, welcome back to Little Atoms. Hello, thanks for having me. First of all, tell us how you would describe this one. Um, mercifully short. <laughs> sort of prose poem slash essay slash play for voices, um, fantasia. Essay gets closest to it, actually, if you think about what did you ever read Brian Dillon's book about essays? Yes. I suppose by his definition of, of essay, you know, essaying around a thought and um, trying various different ways of nailing and, you know, an encounter to the page. I suppose it's closer to an essay than it is to a short story. So Francis Bacon, what does he mean to you then? Why Francis Bacon? Uh, well, he's got this... I was very into him when I was a teenager. And so part of writing about him is revisiting who I was back then and also how I've changed, but also a kind of reckoning with, with the, you know, what I was just saying, really, with how to write a short novel and what it should include and what it can include and what I want the reader to experience and various differing levels of kind of difficulty and tension in, in the reading experience. But also he is such a well-written-about painter and such an iconic painter. So there is, I suppose, this temptation to kind of go beyond the cliche or go beyond the biography uh, so sort of I mean it was a, it was a surprise to me this book because I was writing a proper novel last year I finished a proper novel and ended up discarding it but in the middle of it I had this sort of desire to get back into the 20th century I think maybe a sort of escapism you know to get back to a time when painters spoke about their work as as interestingly as he spoke about his and and there was this kind of ambitious cultural vocabulary around things and fantastic 
I guess maybe it's being in lockdown as well. I, I kind of I wanted to transport myself into someone's studio or into the into a pub with a load of interesting, pissed, flamboyant people. I, maybe it was an, an element of escapism. I haven't really thought about that before. But you know, books arrive in my mind as as a set of problems to be solved or or worries to be dismantled. And and my worrying about how to write well about painting was, I suppose, my my lift off for this. It's interesting you say you got into him as a teenager. There seems to be a obvious things about Bacon's work that would appeal to a teenager. I remember myself being sort of very impressed by Herodias Bosch and yeah. painters like that when I when I was a teenager. And I wonder to what extent your opinion has changed over the years. In the book, you reproduce a, a John Berger quote that, that says, um, Bacon is a, a very remarkable, but not finally an important painter. So, I mean, I'm sure you don't agree with that because you've just written this little book about it. But let's talk about what he means by that. Well, not far off it. I mean, Berger came around in the end and actually sort of reconsidered Bacon and reappraised him towards the end of Bacon's life. I don't think he's a great draftsman. I think he is an incredible... I mean, he would admit to that himself. I think he is an incredible handler of paint. That's unarguable, I think. He's a great painter. Whether he's an important artist, I think he's an important artist because he was a figurative painter when figurative painting was in decline. I think he's an important artist because he was very famous and it's interest celebrity is interesting and we have an interesting relationship with it in this country it can be a very toxic and unpleasant thing but it can also be a kind of prison into which people kind of project themselves i think he's interesting and important because of the relationship he had with his own myth i find that really interesting and that comes partly because of the amount that he was interviewed and the sort of extent to which he was involved in in his own myth making so i think i think he's interesting and important and I have to say, revisiting the work this year, I from lockdown, you know, getting the catalogue raisonne up on the computer and spending hours at a time scrolling through the work chronologically. I think he, compared to painters who I think, like, say, say I look at Freud or Graham Sutherland or, I don't know, Ben Nicholson or uh, Joni Mitchell or anyone, actually, um, Jackson Pollock. Like, I feel like there might be greater range and there might be greater, like, explorations that happen within their oeuvre but there's something about Bacon that is so relentless like there's something almost pathological about his hunting of a certain correctness to the body in space that I find uh, yeah I find it really compelling and possibly more compelling than I have done since I was a teenager because when I was you know I went off to study art history and got very into work as far away as this as you can possibly go you know minimalism and you know I ended up writing about um, feminist performance art and things which actually so it probably isn't so far from this, but you know what I mean? Like my interests were elsewhere. And I think coming back and look at him this year and sort of considering not just Bacon, but the environment of British, as it were, what would you call it? Kind of um, mainstream British high culture, you know, opera and literature and um, music and in people's ordinary people's interest in classical music and things like that. Perhaps I was seeing in, in this book a kind of way to escape to a time when we were less culturally conservative. And obviously that would be kind of anti-historical, that view, in as much as times were more politically conservative. But there, there was this kind of freedom and ambition to do with ideas and expression that we seem to have lost, um, which would come back to, I guess, to a, a sense of this book being an escapist project for me. One of the, the things you immediately notice on, on reading the book, and indeed I've, I've noticed this mentioned in a number of reviews of the book I've read, is that it's it's very light on background detail for the the situation in which we're presented with. Um, you know, we, there's not a, a, a brief explanation of how Francis Bacon happened to be dying yeah. in Madrid, and that's obviously was a you know deliberate decision of yours. Tell me why. Well, do you feel you you needed it? 
I feel if I wanted to know more about Francis Bacon, the person and the artist, I might have done. But considering this is a book that purports to record his last moments, his last thoughts, then no. Yeah. I'm, I guess I'm finding or have found that the kind of the novelist, you know, in inverted commas, or, or indeed the publishing industry or the way we present novels, particularly social realist novels, tends to patronise the reader. And I don't think it's very difficult to... I mean, I know it's not very difficult. You could Google Death of Francis Bacon and find out an enormous amount of detail in under four seconds. It's completely immediate and easy for almost everybody on this planet to find out something about the death of Francis Bacon. So I don't think it's the job of the novelist to do that work. And I think that the novel has to be something different from the biography or from the, you know, beginner's guide to Francis Bacon, or even from the from the scholarship from academia. And I suppose that, you know, I'm I don't want to kid anyone, and I certainly don't want anyone to spend six quid on a book that they they feel lost and confused in. But I, you know, you can tell from my previous work and you can tell from a certain interest I have in hybridity and stuff that you're not going to get a realistic conventionally structured account of the dying of this artist full of kind of recognizable or realist strategies because that's not the kind of writer I am so in a way if there's some difficulty there or some obfuscation on my part then then I'm glad because that that's sort of what I'm going that's sort of what one wants right especially with this book I'm trying to get into the sense of what these pictures feel like when you look at them and they are they are a bombardment. They're incredibly rich and dense with allusions to other works in the history of, of the painted image. They're full of uh, eroticism. They're full of physicality. They're full of the practical aspects of art making. They're full of weird nods to tabloid newspapers and dental hygiene adverts and pornography and cricket magazines and all this. So to sort of quieten that all down and say, OK, dear reader, here we are. He's 80-something years old. He's been suffering from kidney cancer. You know, I think that would be not, not interesting. And the, the very basic attempt is to write something that's interesting and generative. And I think that one aspect of that should be a degree of density and difficulty, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't imagine the Tate sells many Francis Bacon tea towels or placemats. <laughs> well, there's a joke in there about going through to the gift shop and buying a Freud tote bag and he says Trey English and this sort of sense of Francis Bacon always being quite self-conscious about his own kitsch which is again one of the things I like about him I don't know whether they probably do you know maybe 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 the Francis Bacon fridge magnet market is booming (laughs) well despite everything we've just said talking about how the actual detail is 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 not needed I am going to make you do it for the purposes of the uh, of the radio show so let's let's talk about why he was in why he's in Madrid and what happens basically in, in the actual real life Francis Bacon. So you're gonna make me undo all my all my strategies <laughs> live on air. <laughs> um well up in this so-called real life that you're so fascinated with, um he um he had been ill. He lived much longer than he expected to. He always thought he would drop dead in a blaze of glory mid, you know, mid fuck or mid um pub crawl. And he had started a relationship slightly unexpectedly met a bloke at dinner in Kensington called um, Jose Capello who was a Spanish banker who was very interested in art and culture and they'd struck it off but from the biographical details we have and they've recently been beautifully expanded by this excellent new biography called Revelations it was not so much a one-way infatuation but the elderly artist was you know sort of bowled over by this hunky young Spaniard and there's a great line in the biography that says you wouldn't dump a man like Francis Bacon you know like he was very obviously at the end of his life he'd had kidney cancer he'd start he had terrible asthma his whole life he had breathing problems he had this retention of fluid stuff going on and so Capello was obviously not like 
didn't think this he was in it for the long run, but nor would he be breaking this guy's heart. You see what I mean? And, and obviously they had a lovely time together. They went around galleries together. They ate and drank together. They had a favourite cocktail together. So against, to cut a relatively long story short, against his doctor's advice, Francis went to Madrid, flew to Madrid. And the implication is that it, he knew it was for the last time. Um, and then when he, he got there and they had a drink and then he had this problem with fluid and breathing. And so they, they checked him into Clinica Ruber, which was a hospice run by um, nuns. And there he died a few days later. But the the convention, the old story was that um, Capello never saw him, that he died alone. And there was all this kind of pathos to do with the sort of lonely Francis Bacon left alone all his friends have died you know he's fallen out with Lucian Freud all this kind of slightly cod heroic myth making went on and actually it turns out that he was beautifully looked after and Capello did see him and he wasn't actually incapacitated Bacon was up and about walking around the room chatting until he lay down and died and so they made him very comfortable so the, the basic premise of the book is say that happens say we're not too concerned with realistic portrayal of events say we kind of transpose or translate this setup beyond the realistic or literal domain into a kind of almost actually a kind of um, Vladimir and Istragon like play for two versatile actors, you know, like the stage is set for a kind of journey back into his own mind, into his own fractured consciousness. And there's appearances throughout the book of, of various characters who were, you know, part of that Soho, French house, Demi Monde, in those days, guys that I guess, you know, like you've said yourself, we all sort of imagine how much we'd have loved to have been in the coaching horses, having a pint oh, with yeah. them. But I imagine nowadays, probably these guys would all be the type that turned up at the Weatherspoons at 11 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, but, um... there was a bloke, actually, you know, the bloke that plays the piano in the coach and the ho- in coach and horses. And he's, mm. uh, he does appear to be about 155 years old. So maybe he's an original you know, original hardcore still hanging on. Anyway, yeah, sorry, carry on. Yeah. Well, again, as you, you sort of already mentioned, again, a lot of these people are mentioned by their by their first names, but it takes, you know, a, a very cursory Google to, to figure out who some of the people that you're talking about are. So tell us about some of the um, some of the figures from Bacon's life that flit through the book. Well, some of them are real and some of them are not real. And I didn't, yeah, I didn't want to stress anyone out with working out wh- whether they're real or not, because I thought, in the same way as does a painting give you, does a painting contain the answers to its own representational strategies as, as you're viewing it? No. You can look at the wall text or you can have your phone or you can do some research, but the truth is the encounter's there, whether you've got the names or not. But into this comes uh, Deakin, the photographer, whose pictures of Bacon and of Bacon's sitters were incredibly important and perhaps have been historically undervalued, actually, as reference material for Bacon. I mean, he used them a lot more than he admitted to when he was alive, and they found a lot of them in the studio as, as literal inspiration. You know, the, fame, the iconic image of, um, of Bacon holding up the two sides of beef. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a John Deacon image. There's going to be a book coming out, I think, about him. Um, Peter Lacey is in it um, mentioned mournfully Lacey was his probably the love of his life they had a very violent relationship that was it was Lacey with whom he is alleged to have developed his most masochistic and and sadomasochistic practices in the bedroom and that was a tragic story Lacey was an alcoholic and ended up dying in Tangier um, who else is in it? Um, Isabel Rawthorn and people. Muriel Belcher, who was the ran the colony room, she's in it. Uh, Freud briefly, but sort of cattily referenced. Uh, Sylvester's in it, and that was important to me because some of the scene, the setups are an homage to the great 
series of interviews that David Sylvester did with Bacon over the years. And I wanted there to be these kind of built-in homages because that's a very Bacon-esque thing to do is to sort of a nod and a wink to a thing you've previously been in or a thing you've previously done or a friend. And, you know, kind of the idea of the name drop is very Bacon-y. You know, the idea that someone recognises you've got a little wink to Poussin in there and you go, yes, darling, how clever that you noticed. And that's, that's for you. And so the book is full of these sort of almost cameos um, because that's, I think, what that's the supposition really is that in the dying mind flicker through all these encounters you've had some people you've loved some people that have annoyed you um the sort of residue of the social the social ecosystem which was incredibly important for him much more than for other artists you know he painted in the morning and he went out in the afternoon and saw people he loved people and so uh, i think if there is any tenderness in the book it is in this strange sense that everyone's gone and here he is at the end of the thing on his own Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Max Porter and we're talking about his latest book, The Death of Francis Bacon. And Max, let's spend some time in the second half talking about, I guess, the style of the book. I've seen you say elsewhere that you've basically attempted to to paint with words. Tell me something about what you mean by that. <laughs> I wish I'd never said it, to be honest, because it is a bit <laughs> of a wanky thing to say. Um, and I can hear eyes rolling. You don't have to Google very hard to find people going, God, that sounds awful. 
<laughs> but I think what it meant for me and the reason I described it as such in the video I made for Faber to explain the book was because I uh, partly, you know, you're obliged to help your publisher find a vocabulary to package the book and sell the book. It's a commercial product for them, and it, albeit not a very commercial one in this case. But I was sort of trying to find a way of describing it so that people wouldn't think it was a straight up novel, you know, or a biopic or anything like that. So I had to find a way of explaining that it basically was an experiment, but I'm not, I don't think, the kind of writer that does an experiment to titillate my own interest in things. I want the reader to be involved. And in this one, I, want, I wanted that involvement to not necessarily be of one sort throughout. I wanted it at times to feel very exclusionary and sort of bombastic and at times quite intimate, at times much more to do with the materiality than, than anything else. So I, I thought like one of the crucial ingredients of this book must be the materials of the artist's life. So things, as I say, ripped out of magazines or the smell of the studio or, yeah, turpentine or palette knives or brushes or, you know, or the art shop and the expensive things and the sheer logistical processes whereby huge bloody great canvases get made and taken by the guys from the gallery and shipped off and sold. So I wanted all that in there. Money is an important thing, the bacon, because he always wanted to make enough money and then he suddenly made a lot more than he needed. So I wanted that in there. And then the actual painterly aspect of things I just started to think very closely about the sentences really and how they might look on the page and how, how I might frame an encounter and make it framed in the way a painting is which is obviously literally framed on the wall and protected from the outside world by its border but also a porous thing that lets in every painted image before it and every experience the viewers ever had it all meets on the surface of the painting so there was there needed to be a kind of busyness but I also wanted this kind of I suppose almost a theatricality or a campness to the gathering of source information so that, you know, that would possibly replicate the speed of the eye over a canvas. So you go, oh, yeah, that's a kid's book I read. Oh, that's a poem I remember. Oh, that's the, you know, that's the feel of my father's hand on the back of my neck. Oh, that's, you know, that's the smell of, of John Deacon's cologne. Oh, that's my breath mint. You know, all the time, this restlessness. Uh, and then suddenly these moments of stillness, as well as these moments of technical control, because that's one of the most... Uh, interesting aspects of Bacon's art for me is the is the chaos and the control all at the same time you know how could someone capable of such mess and such aggression and such apparent dynamism also be so finicky and and actually and masterful with the with the handling of large expanses of paint and stuff so I guess I guess if anything I wasn't trying to do it literally I wasn't trying to write about you know that nowhere in this book do you feel like paint is being described being squeezed out of a tube onto a canvas you know that that would be dull and we've had that before to me it's more that the total experience of reading it through its ups and downs and its accelerations and its pauses and it's sort of as i say these sort of mini mini dramas embedded in it comes close to the overall experience of an immersion in in those paintings and these are also the the final thoughts of of a dying man we shouldn't forget and there's I mean, there's one particular passage, I think, at the beginning of the um, of, of the sixth part where the text itself sort of breaks down. But other than that, I mean, tell us about how what you've just said about talking about painting also meshes with the fact that, you know, you're writing the final, recreating the mind of someone near death. Yeah, a fractured mind and one mm. prone to remembering and kind of latching onto things and then realising that they're slipping away. And I think that that also has to become a painterly set of gestures on the page, right down into the kind of granular details of the sentence as well. So that bit you're referring to is sort of a smudging, um, 
or a, or a loss of focus, you know, images that aren't necessarily clear, you know, a little bit of too, you know, the whole the, the bacon enterprise of, of the figure pinned in space is that you is it an eye or is it a hole? Is it is it a bone emerging or is it or is it uh, is it white? Is it is it cum or blood or is it a splash or is it is it movement? Is it is that is that teeth or is it is it animal bones? You know, all the time this slippage between what can be seen and what what is hinted at so for that I think you know in the same way as in my first book I wanted to try and get at the kind of formless emotional breakdown of a person fractured by grief and that therefore the language itself needs to become fractured I thought the same thing here really that that I have to get beyond the the realist mode where we're describing things neatly and cleanly in in a way that is completely explicable and get to a point where you are as the reader trying to grab at, at meaning and also reduce it to pure sound. There's some like this is a sex scene we're talking about here. And I wanted the sense of of the sort of, you know, these how do you get to close to what Bacon if you were to write neatly and cleanly and in a sort of Mills and Boone style way about Bacon's the sex in Bacon's images or the allusion to bodies in close proximity, you'd be already tidying it up or prettifying it. So how would the language get to it? I figured the language just had to have these sort of bits of body and whacking and slapping and spitting and fingering and fuck, because that's, that's the type of love that is there in, in, in all this pain and anguish on the surface. Um, I can remember you using the word, particularly the word clack, which I don't think I'm ever going uh, <laughs> to forget that particular usage. Yeah, well, I'm glad you noticed, Neil, that's all I can say. <laughs> um, you're the first person to comment on my clacking... <laughs> my clacking bum I mean the thing is about it is that I you know it's a six six and a half thousand word book and I could I could have put it in a magazine or I could have done it as a you know as a radio play or something but there is something I mean Faber it's great they wanted to publish it they're my publisher and that's lovely but there's something about putting it between two covers and calling it you know the new novel by x that means that you are putting a certain amount of pressure on it to be understood in certain ways like in the history of the convention of the novel and the ways we tell stories and the way things have narrative arcs or or revelations or whatever built into them and i think one of the things i'm interested in is if you are alone especially these days when we're so bombarded with sound and image all the time you are alone with this book and you get to a scene that doesn't make sense and you start to realize oh it's it's a description of sex but these aren't words I know so I'm going to have to read it in my head or even out loud in a way that that approximates language but is it is closer to what I'm like onomatopoeically closer to what I'm seeing here which is basically a series of grunts and as you say clacks then I I like to me I, I, I find that interesting because it involves the reader like the reader is bodily and and intellectually and actually possibly even physically like complicit in the drama in a way they wouldn't be if I was just if it was just plain prose and they were being told exactly what was happening and what the two bodies were doing like ambiguity and the work that the reader has to do to extricate meaning is a form of collaboration between me and them and I'm, as a writer whether it works or not for the reader whether they think it's genius or or trash that is something that really does interest me about writing I'm interested in that long term I think and all the books have thus far been experiments in relation to that fundamental magic to me which is a person sitting with the book on their own and, and doing this work or not the book is set out in the in the format of um apart from the the, the first introductory chapter um the preparatory sketch the seven chapters based around a an untitled canvas like the sort of card in a gallery um but then beyond that each chapter with the caveat that sometimes it slightly breaks down each chapter starts and ends 
in the same way with the same words. Tell me about this use of repetition. I was working in the theatre with with people in the theatre and I was very interested in, I mean, it, it, it continues my previous answer in a way because I was interested in this directness of of encounter, this almost theatrical setup. And I thought, well, what is the novel except, you know, a, an empty stage? And on page one, you've got your audience sitting down. And you can you can begin putting things on the stage, whether it's, you know, whether it's a cast of characters or one person speaking or, or you know, carefully modelled realistic scenery or just, you know, a cardboard box, whatever you want to do. And so I like I like that as a setup and I like the artificiality of that as, as a, an empty interior into which to project flesh. And that felt like a bacony thing to do. And Bacon was, before he was a painter, he was an interiors man. You know, he designed beautiful sort of mid-century, quite really, he was really quite good at it, actually, um, you know, decor. And I sort of thought, like, that's the ultimate, you know, because the the easier option, I suppose, would have been to sort of set it in the colony room with everyone coming in and it being very noisy and busy. But I actually wanted this, I wanted to put him through this kind of, yeah, as I say, almost Beckettian or, or almost kind of have, get the kind of aggression of a pinter play. You know, when pinter plays have that sense almost of, a, of an interrogation of a like, right, here you are. You're dying. Here's your nurse. Let's squeeze meaning out of you. You know, let, like we've got we've got maybe four days before you cop it. Let's answer some of the bigger questions and and peel back some of the kind of veneers of fakery or or self-glorification or indeed just or just the sort of um, the mannerisms by which a person is known and knows themselves and try and get back into the subconscious and into, you know, way back into childhood. You know, there's a bit where he's suddenly back as a child in Dublin, you know, pressed up against someone's armpit in a room. And so I suppose the kind of kind of stage setting there and Bacon's interiors, these rooms with one or two, you know, the, the most three or four figures in the room, sometimes an animal. But there also is for me the, the psychoanalytical encounter, the idea of, of therapist and patient. So I suppose that that's intriguing to me the confessional frame you know to finish off can i get you to read us a little bit so this is from each chapter invites him to choose between himself and someone else in the kind of storytelling game that she is playing with him or he is playing with himself and this is from the caravaggio section which sort of supposes that poor old bacon has to has to die as caravaggio is the patient with you Keep still, please, while we're in the middle image. Can you hold the phone to his ear? Caravaggio? Tick. Definitely him. He has distinctive death rattle, abdominal pain, cramps and vomiting. Tick. Discoloration of the urine and faeces. Tick. Foul-smelling injury to make it shine. Makeup still wet when the chatty boys from the Marlborough came to pick up. Take me while I'm wet. Prendimi, signore, sell me quick. I am merely the middle. Expensive cologne to cover it up hating myself. Three, rolling over into the sheer textural left to right, the line between his work and mine, several centuries of light on human flesh, real people in oil, roiling with the worst moods and most painful injuries and self-pitying praise-hungry mania to ever afflict a genius with a brush and a fight-me flush. I'm not happy paying actors, posing less and less surprised by light. I want him leaving. I want the eye to trundle off past him. I'm inside the bloody thing watching you regard it. Late 60s, hearing you say, it's the best work I've done. Back around to the left, glancing off the face of the person in pain as if the mouth is the habit the eye has to kick. I'm inside the bloody thing watching you regard it. Early 80s, hearing you say, it's the worst work I've done. 
I've been talking to Max Porter. We've been talking about his latest book, The Death of Francis Bacon, which is out now from Faber. Max, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with us. Cheers, Neil. It's really nice to be in touch again. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.